Today we continue with the second chapter of Acts and our subject is the power and the message of the church. Karen is going to read a shortened version of a fairly long chapter which is Acts 2 and uh, I'd encourage you to also read carefully the full chapter. Chapter 1, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And from verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And from verse 36. Therefore, all of Israel, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all 
whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is a, a dramatic passage, a singular moment in the New Testament and the birth of the Christian church. There are two groups that make up the story. First, the Jews, and they're celebrating the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. It's called several things, Feast of Harvest, Feast of Weeks. And it's a, it's a, a celebration of the harvest, which is beginning. It's one of three feasts that required people to, to be drawn from all parts of uh, not only Israel, but whenever Jews are dispersed to. And that's why uh, later on in the story, we'll hear that there are Jews from every nation speaking, speaking the language of every nation. It's a festive, crowded, bright occasion. The second group are the disciples in the story. And of them, there are about 120, as we read last week. And they have been through a journey of immense ups and downs. We've read through Mark recently as a church, and we're familiar with the, the heights of excitement and the depths of despair. The disciples were witnesses to Jesus' tremendous drawing power with miracles and audiences that listened to his, his wonderful words. But then as he began to speak about his own death, all of that vanished and it became a very small group. The crucifixion was barely understood and a terrible, crushing low point for the disciples. Of course, it's followed by resurrection and Easter's just, just gone past us. The excitement of re resurrection doesn't last forever though because Jesus leaves and we arrived at last week's message where the disciples were waiting. In that waiting, they have something in their memory Jesus had said to them on one occasion while he was eating do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift that my father has promised which you've heard me speak about for John baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit that doesn't mean perhaps very much to them what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit what does it mean to have had Jesus with us again and then to have lost him, and now we're on our own, I think it's in many ways a, a tense and perhaps even lonely time for them. What happens next is astonishing. Last week, Matt described it as the church absolutely exploding, in a good way. Not all church explosions are good, but this was. The disciples are gathered somewhere, once upon a time, it was thought to be an upper room in old translations, but you won't find that anymore. I find it attractive to think of the possibility that, that some teachers suggest that it's actually the steps of the temple where this group of believers um, have gathered together and they're discussing, listening to each other. And then a moment comes utterly unexpected in an environment which is busy and noisy already, no doubt, crowded in a city. 
and then something happens completely startling, unexpected. These tongues of fire descend on the heads of all those that are gathered there and they begin to speak in languages that they haven't learned. And people are drawn to it. The spectacle just draws people in because there are uh, visitors for the feast from every nation, Jews from um, all over the place. Karen read the list of names. And they can hear their own language being spoken by people who shouldn't know their language. And it's quite a spectacle. They can hear the wonders of God being proclaimed, perhaps like a prophecy. And this spectacle draws more and more people. Twice in the New Testament, the uh, being filled with the Spirit is compared with drunkenness in this passage and also in Ephesians. And that perhaps just gives us a little insight into how extraordinary and how powerful this occasion was. It's like nothing else that's ever happened and it is wondrous. Peter stands up and he begins this wonderful message. He draws on uh, Old Testament prophecy from Joel and from the words of King David. We didn't hear those read this morning because they're, they're lengthy, but I do encourage you to go and read them. Find your Bible and open it up. Peter says, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what Karen read, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's important just to pause for a moment and, and think how, how new and how what a revolution these words are. The idea that he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible because that's only just happened. It's such a new thing. And yet Peter declares it as the truth. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number. 3,000 New believers, uh, I should have done a little percentage calculation, but it's a lot, isn't it? If you start with 120 and then you're 3,000. This is the explosion of the church that, uh, that Pastor Matt mentioned last week. Incidentally, the number about 3,000 is quite important because on the day that the Ten Commandments were first brought down the mountain by, by Moses, he heard, if you remember, the sound of, of celebration and of drinking and of mm, whatever. <laughs> and he was overwhelmed and broke the tablets because he saw the revelry that was going on. And it says in that passage back in Exodus that about 3,000 people died. And so there's a, a, a wonderful comparison there. In 2 Corinthians, we read the written covenant brought death but the new covenant in the spirit brings life. So it's quite a poignant picture. This morning, <laughs> today, our topic is the power and the message of the church. And it seems to me that there's perhaps rarely been a time where that is a more important question for us to address the change in the world in just a few weeks is hard to 
describe, hard to credit, and yet we're living in a world which is utterly different from anything that we'd imagined. This is a very good moment at which to be considering what is the power and message of the church, of our church, of the church broadly. The events that we've read in Acts 2 are dazzlingly powerful. And to us, the message, repent and believe, is very familiar. But the question that we face is, how do we participate in that? How do we cross the immense gap between the power of the message that Peter preached with this demonstration of the Spirit's presence and power? How do we cross that gap between what we read there and our reasonably ordinary lives as rural Victorian Baptists or wherever you happen to be when you're listening to this? I was once taken by a friend to visit a man who had been severely tortured in his home country. And at the time I was a pastor of a Pentecostal denomination and I could sense very, very quickly in the family that were in this room with this man who was a, a believer, they were all strong Christians, I could feel very quickly their palpable disappointment that I, who was um, a, a Pentecostal pastor, which in, which in their culture was something quite different to perhaps what, what we're used to, that I, that I didn't have a miracle to perform, that I didn't pray and call down an Acts chapter 2 blessing. And I didn't, I couldn't, it wasn't there. And the, the disappointment that they felt in me was quite, as I say, palpable. And it stayed with me for a long time because I wondered, what do we do? God's power is always his and it's not ours. It's always his. There really are miracles in the world. They do still happen. And sometimes God does use us in extraordinary and miraculous ways. We should never rule out that possibility and we should perhaps be very open to it happening. But our personal responsibility is not the miracle. Our personal responsibility is to follow Jesus. That's a simple idea, but I hope I can flesh that out a little bit. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, as you probably know. This word is to breathe or blow, or, or even the blowing of the wind could fit into that word. In John chapter 3, we read, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's a very momentary thing, a breath, isn't it? You have only one breath to take at a time. You can't, you can't store them up. Well, you can hold your breath a bit, can't you? But really, it's just one breath at a time. And there's a, there's a really profound lesson in that because our faith is quite momentary, isn't it? I, I, can't, I can't have a relationship with God except in this immediate moment. I can't 
be related to God in the future because it's unknown. I can only enjoy God's presence here in this very moment. And so it is with breathing. It's, it's very much the same when we think of ourselves as followers of Jesus because we can only take a single step at a time. We follow him very immediately and I think very momentarily. I want to tell you a story which I think you'll think has absolutely nothing to do with the topic, but I assure you it does. Quite recently, I was on Central Station in Sydney and I was waiting for a, a train and the train was not due for nearly an hour, but I was on the platform and to use the time, I was continuing some work on some leather that I had and I was sewing up some shoes or scuffs that I was making for my grandchildren. And a, a, a staff member came over to talk to me and he said, sir, we're going to break the train, you know, not, not damage it, break it in half so it would go two different ways. And he said, you'll need to move up there, please, because this end of the train's going where you don't want to go. So I moved along the platform quite a distance. And when I got there and, and went to start my work again, I discovered that I had lost the, the needle that I was stitching le the leather with. I was greatly displeased about that circumstance because not only did I have about an hour to wait for the train, but the train trip down to Wollongong was going to be another couple of hours and I just hate not having something to do. I've got to be busy, you know. And so I started to look around up and down the platform for the needle and I was following where I thought I'd rolled along looking for the needle and I could not find it. As I remember it, there were patches of sort of brickwork on the, the floor, pavers I guess, very old and there was tar and there was all different sort of... And I really wanted to find the needle, I really did. And so I prayed that I'd find the needle. Do you ever worry about the trivial prayers that you offer to God? I certainly do. When there are such dire problems all around us in ordinary life, let alone in a season of, of worldwide pandemic, when there are so many serious things that we do pray about, should, can and do pray about, to pray about something as trivial, trivial as a lost needle just seems to me to be, well, self-centred. And yet I did it, because we all do, don't we? I'm sure I'm not the only one. I was praying for the needle and wandering along the platform looking for it when the, the staff member who had told me to move along noticed me and he said, have you lost something? So I must have looked the part. So I told him a little sheepishly that I had lost a sewing needle. He was about as far from me as that microphone stand. I don't know whether you can see it on the camera. You probably can't, but it's just over there. And he didn't move a footstep. He just bent down and picked something up and said, this needle? Just like that. That's absolutely what happened. Why does God answer small prayers? I've wondered about this for such a long time because it seems to me that, that sometimes the smallest prayers 
get more answers than the big prayers. Now, I don't know whether that's true. I've never done a, a little diary to keep track of it. But sometimes I just wonder, God, why do you answer the little tiny prayers so frequently? And I've asked different colleagues and people, and I've, I've really been troubled by this for, for, for a very, very long time and wondered why it is. And recently, I've begun to think that I might even understand it. I think that God answers small prayers because he is with us in the moment where small things are. I think that in these tiny moments of, of answered prayer, which are so insignificant in the big picture, but quite important to us personally at times, I think that God is teaching us in little moments how to follow him through into the big moments. The story that we read this today in Acts chapter 2 is overwhelmingly big. It overwhelms me because of its drama and its power. And if it were up to me uh, to, to be Peter and to recreate that on, on, on some gathering in public somewhere, I would just quail at the thought of it. There's so many things that are too big for me problems in the world that, that needs God attention, God, need God's attention and yet they're beyond my grasp. However, as followers of Christ, we can be used by God to be carriers of his message, to be carriers of his power and the path to do that is to become more and more a follower of Jesus. To beautiful sentences that I um, wrote down from Matt's sermon last week I'd like to read to you. They are just so apt and so wonderful, I think. Two things that Pastor Matt said. The first is, the more of a nobody you are, the better. And I, I find myself so drawn to that. The more of a nobody you are, the better. And the second is, nobodies are small so that they point to a greater somebody. Nobodies are small so that they point to a greater somebody. And I think that this is so key to the path of following Jesus. We point to him. The responsibility for the miracle isn't ours. It's not up to us to perform a miracle. God does the miraculous. It's God's power that is at work. And we are just followers. We're just ordinary followers. When I follow Jesus in this moment, my momentary relationship when I follow him in this moment and the next moment and the moment after that and the next moment beyond that as well, I am then a follower of Jesus. When I'm obedient to God in this moment and obedient to him in the next, then I am an obedient follower of Jesus. If I receive God's spirit in this moment, if I welcome his spirit to inhabit my heart in this moment and in the next and in the one beyond that then I am full of the spirit if we are led by God's spirit he breathes through us and he breathes his will into the world around us and who knows really what might happen then 
I wonder if you've ever heard a story about Billy Graham and his conversion. It, it, it goes like this. It starts, I don't know how many years earlier than Billy Graham, but probably nearly a century. And there's a story told that a man by the name of Edward Kimball teaches a Sunday school class. And he's a diligent man and he follows up the, the uh, members of his little Sunday school group with great personal attention. And on a particular day, he feels moved to go to the workplace of one of his boys in his group. And on that day, in, I think it's a shoe shop, the story goes, he persuades this young man to become a follower of Christ, to make a personal commitment. And uh, this young man, his name is Dwight Moody, Dwight L. Moody, which is a famous name. You may well have heard of it, an, an, uh, a, a preacher and writer and teacher in America. The story says that the young man, Dwight Moody, goes on to win the, uh, another person to salvation. His name is Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman, in turn, is responsible for reaching out to a man called Billy Sunday, a name you might also have heard. Billy Sunday disciples Mordecai Ham, and this man with a wonderful name, isn't it? Mordecai Ham runs a tent revival which is attended by Billy Graham when he's still in his teens, still at school, and he is converted. And he becomes, of course, the, the famous evangelist that speaks to three billion people, they estimate. Why do I tell you that? Because there, there is this idea that you never know whether your small contribution to God's kingdom will become something fabulously big. But I must say, I don't really like that story particularly because the Bible says that it's to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit. And I think only God knows what the fruitfulness of our life is. I don't think that it's sensible for us to live in hope that we will do something that will influence millions of people. Because how do we know what God truly values? How do we know what glorifies God? Surely it's not just simply numbers. Do we know that the person who does reach a vast number of people with God's message is any more valuable than the person who spends their entire life sheltered and secluded, caring for a loved one, caring for a, a person of their family, an acquaintance even, a neighbour? We don't know. What matters is that each of us follow Jesus closely and that as we are led forward day by day, step by step, we can then be used by God in ways that only he understands. We'll be used by God in small ways, in large ways. We'll become fruitful and the world needs us desperately at this moment. There's an author, Henry Nouwen, who puts this so succinctly. Let me read this to you just as we finish. Nouwen writes that the great secret of the spiritual life is that you already know the little steps, even if you don't know the big ones. You don't need to know the big steps to take the little steps 
You only have to take one step at a time. Perhaps it's never mattered more that we as a church understand what the power and the message of the church is. But as so often with Jesus, it's rather upside down. The breathtaking, spectacular miracle of Pentecost is ours. It's our heritage. It's, it's in the past, but in a sense it's in the future. The message of salvation, of Christ's death and resurrection, it will be shared again and again and again with great power. However, it's not our goal. Rather than searching for a powerful message, our path is so very clear. We are followers of Jesus. We follow him, we're led by the Spirit, and we bear the fruit of the kingdom. Let me pray with you. Father God, in this day, open our hearts so that we might be filled with your Spirit as it was on the day of Pentecost. We bring our hearts and our lives to you and pray, Lord, that you would fill us and use us, that you would allow us to take small steps that take us to places we may not imagine, in our families, in our homes, in our community, in the lives of the people of our world, to bear the fruit of your kingdom, to demonstrate your love, to bring to our world the love of Jesus Christ. Amen.